0: Welcome to the Primary Source Podcast. My name is Tom Bober, a school librarian in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri. This podcast is here to explore the uses of primary sources in K-12 libraries and classrooms. We'll dig into resources and teaching strategies, talk to educators who are utilizing primary sources, and supporters of educators who curate these incredible items and use them in their work. Well, this is our second episode and our last episode that we actually recorded in 2021 and brought into 2022. And this one made me really nervous because just as I was getting ready to circle back and work on this a little over a week ago, I realized that the recordings seemed to be lost, seemed to be just have disappeared. And I was so upset because I loved this conversation. And thankfully, the friends at Riverside FM, which is where I do all of my podcast recording through or most of it through, were able to come through. And I don't know what kind of magic they did, but they were able to find those recordings, send them back to me. And I was just able to today dig into those recordings again. They are beautiful. They are perfect. I am so thankful because our guest today is fellow librarian although she is in Virginia, Um, Rebecca Newland. She is also a former teacher-in-residence, and you'll hear the whole introduction in my recording with her. But I've just got the utmost respect for Rebecca, and after having this conversation with her late last year, listening to it again just tonight, I absolutely know why. She just knows her stuff, and she is a great resource to the teachers she works with, the librarians that she is connected with, and to me, I am lucky to be able to call her a friend and a colleague, and I'm lucky to be able to share this conversation that she and I had together where she talked about students and primary sources and literature and collaboration with teachers and she just gives all kinds of pro tips that I know that you're going to love. So let's go ahead and jump into the episode. I know you'll enjoy. I could not be more excited to talk with an old friend of mine here on the Primary Source podcast today, and that is Rebecca Newland. Let me tell you just a little bit about her. She is currently a co-librarian at a Fairfax County Virginia high school. She previously served two years as the Library of Congress teacher in residence. That's where she and I met. She began her career as a high school English teacher, first in Manchester Township, New Jersey, then in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And professionally, she is interested in a whole lot of things, but in ways to entice students to read for both pleasure and information. Her experience as an English teacher and interest in engaging students with poetry has led her to writing a regular post for From the Catbird Seat, and that's a blog of the Poetry and Literature Center at the Library of Congress. It is one of my favorites. Her experience working with teachers while serving as teacher in residence has prompted her to investigate and present on ways in which teachers and librarians can use primary sources to spark student curiosity and inquire as a way to center learning on student interests and motivation. She sounds wonderful, doesn't she? Rebecca Newland, welcome to the Primary Source Podcast.
1: Well, thank you very much, Tom. It's good to be here.
0: I am so happy to be talking with you. So, I know that you are getting ready to present at your state school library organization about collaborations with ELA teachers with that special focus on primary sources. and. I want to jump in to that specifically, and I want to spend some of our time here today on that, because I know that many educators immediately think about social studies and history specifically when we talk about primary sources. For you, where do primary sources fit into the ELA classroom?
1: I think in some ways it is very similar to how they fit in with the history classes, Um, For myself, especially having been a high school English teacher, I was always interested in introducing students to the historical context of the things that we were reading. That doesn't work for every novel, but for so many of the ones that are still common um, in American high schools particularly, lend themselves really well. So for instance, The Great Gatsby or Of Mice and Men, books that have kind of both a time and a place that sometimes are difficult for students today to really get their brains around. And so bringing in newspaper articles um, or maps or just images of people from the jazz age really are helpful in order to help kids kind of immerse themselves in that world. So I think that has a lot obviously in common with the way the history teachers use primary sources. Um, But I always like to use them in a couple of other ways as well. One, I think that especially images, um, photographs, prints can be used really well to prompt writing. Um, Kids aren't necessarily able to just sit down and write. If you say, hey, today we're going to write a poem or today I'd like you to write a little narrative about, you know, something that you've done recently. They sometimes need the inspiration, just like all writers do. And particularly kids who don't do that kind of creative writing very regularly need a little bit of prompting. And so I find that giving them photographs that they can react to and then build from there, whether it be a poem or a narrative really works well. And so I I always enjoy that. And plus they just get, they they really like looking at like what they call, you know, old timey pictures and and all that old stuff that you want to show us. And I think that's really engaging for them. And sort of jumping off from that, I also like to use primary sources to inspire inquiry. So especially when I work with um, teachers, when I'm doing the collaborative pieces, um, a way to get kids into the research process is often to give them something in the topic areas that they're gonna be working on as a little bit of inspiration to get them asking questions. Because I think most of us in the library world know The kids do a better job when they're curious about something than when we assign it. It's just like having reading choice, having research choice works just the same and getting them excited and interested through the pictures or newspaper articles that don't really make sense to them from their perspective or or anything that gets them going, well, what, why, how? And asking those questions themselves then makes the research piece of it so much smoother for me as a librarian and for the teachers as well, I think.
0: I think everything, all of your examples, I, of course, wholeheartedly agree with. The one thing that keeps coming to mind in all of those is that engagement factor, that if you're working with the piece of literature that they don't have a contextual understanding of the place, it's harder to really get into it where that primary source might be able to provide that. As you were talking about the photos and the prints being used for writing prompts. at Right before you said the word inspiration, I'm writing it down on my paper. It's that piece that students want to be engaged, but they sometimes need those extra pieces to get them there. And there is something about primary sources, well-selected primary sources, that I think do a really incredible job of that.
1: Yeah, I like what you said there about well-selected primary sources. And I think that's where the collaborative piece can really be significant for teachers because we know that, and I'll say it, and I've said it before, and people will have heard me say it, that the greatest thing about primary source resources from all sorts of places, the Library of Congress being one of them, the National Archives, is there's so much. And we know that our teachers just don't necessarily have the facility with those sites maybe if they haven't used them very much and they may not have the time and i think that's where the librarian can really step in and say well hey you know i do have some time that i can put to this plus i have worked on these sites before i know how to search for the things that we want in maybe a, a quicker way and that's where i think at least in my case i can bring that expertise to my teachers and i think they appreciate that knowing that we're in this together that well they have the vision for what we want to do with the kids, then I have some of the know-how to get them to those primary sources. And if kids haven't been using them, at least the analysis piece of it, I can bring that in as well. And I think that's one of the powerful things about the collaborative relationship between the librarian and the teacher is that everybody brings their best thing to the experience.
0: So talk to me a little bit more about collaboration, because I think that for a lot of librarians, it can sometimes be a mystery, it can sometimes be a little frustrating. And so if we're talking about a librarian that wants to bring in primary sources, that either wants to be that curator of sources, that wants to um, encourage the use of primary sources through any of these really great examples that you gave us, how are you making those initial connections with teachers to let them know that that is something that you're bringing to the table and something that you can offer?
1: I think I have an advantage in many ways being in a high school because in a high school library, we aren't mandated to work with anyone. And I know some elementary schools don't have fixed schedules and some do, um, but we everything we do is sort of organic. Um, teachers come to us and say, hey, we're thinking about wanting to do some research with kids in this way or that way. Um, what what are ideas you have? What have you done before? Uh, particularly, I love working with new teachers who don't have necessarily a preconceived notion about what we do in the library. And they can sometimes be our best advocates. Then when they go back to the other teachers on their team, whether it's the 10th grade, you know, American lit or 11th grade British lit or whatever. If they say, hey, we we're working with the librarians and they came up with this really great idea, I think we should all do it. I think it'll really work well for us. That's one of our, our best kind of things is that word of mouth that once we've, we've made some headway with one teacher. Um, but I also, when I first started as a librarian, I came into a position where the person before me um, had been less enthusiastic perhaps than um, the school maybe wanted about um, the role in the library. And so I had a great opening there too. And sometimes I just went through like the curriculum and would look at where there might be a piece where i could kind of jump in and say hey i know there's these really great science resources would you science teachers be interested in working with some primary sources with me where we can show kids you know images and and talk of science like happening being done um and so that while that can be challenging and it can sometimes be intimidating sometimes just going to a teacher with an idea that that you've already kind of fleshed out a little bit and saying hey what do you think and then having them bring in their their viewpoint of it and how you can make the modifications to fit the needs of their kids is one of the best ways to start those, those collaborative chats.
0: It does. I mean, that is a true collaboration, right? Where you're kind of bouncing ideas off of each other. And as you said, kind of everyone's bringing their best game. I'm at, I know you know this, but at the elementary level, and I'm on a flexible schedule also. So there is a little bit, I always call it like a hustle. You're, you're always kind of <laughs> drumming up uh, the next thing that you want to do. And I love what you said about tapping into new teachers or tapping into that one individual and then getting them to spread the word, because that for me also has been a really surefire way to drum up that business and show what the library can offer to the teachers and and most importantly to the students. I want to circle back to primary sources, and I want to focus in on literature again. I'm a big proponent of primary sources sitting side by side with literature. I think it's it's a really great pairing, like you mentioned earlier. For you— What does that interaction between the two look like? You mentioned analysis a little bit earlier. This is another skill that you kind of bring to the collaboration game with your teachers. What are you thinking about when you're putting those two sources, the historical source and the literature source together?
1: Well, I approach it in two different ways. Sometimes I think it's a good idea that before you've even introduced a novel or even a short story or any you know any work of literature that you're going to use with your students. sometimes you can bring the primary sources in first where the kids don't really know anything. And then just like when I, I was talking a little bit before about research is that you get them interested in the ideas. So I'll go to the of mice and Men. Um, I wrote a blog post not too too long ago um, or maybe it was longer ago than I think, but it was about bringing some contextual pieces to of mice and men. And one of the items that I had was this really, really, really graphic, beautiful map of California and the different growing areas in California from the nineteen, the early nineteen twenties and the nineteen thirties, which is when the you know the book takes place. And it it was just so visually stimulating, and it helped to talk about this idea of migrant workers, which are what the two main characters Lenny and George are, and many of the other. ancillary characters as well. And so helping students to understand what that means in a place like California, especially kids who don't come from agrarian backgrounds, kids who, you know, I I live right outside, I work right outside of a city. So, you know, they don't necessarily have a lot of context for what that might be like and about the lives of people whose jobs are contingent on the weather holding out and being able to move from place to place to place. And so we started with that map first, before they even knew they were going to be reading of Mice and Men, before they knew anything about John Steinbeck, any of that. And that just engaged them. And we were able to have so many interesting conversations and get them to kind of look around and say, what is it like to be a migrant worker? Because while we read historical fiction, and I think it's important, I always like to bring it up to the present, too. What does this say about, you know, how does this connect to what happens today with migrant workers around the country or in, you know, in other countries? So that's one way is to give them the primary sources first and then use it as the, the entryway point into a novel that may be way outside their experience. But then there's the other piece where you're already reading and then you say, okay, so now that we've established this, we've, we've read about this great party at Gatsby's house. We've talked about you know what, how he and, and Nick have come home from the war and what those experiences might've been like. Now let's take a look at some of those things. Let's look at a picture of these soldiers in the trenches during world war one and what that looks like. Let's look at, you know, some jazz, let's listen to some jazz age music, you know, f- produced at that time, you know, right in that, with that, that tinny, I know you're, you um, are a big proponent of audio and visual um, primary sources, but listen to that tinny recording that they come in. That is so much different than the quality of, of audio that we have today. And maybe look at like a little old silent film piece just to, to get them into like, what are these, human beings whose story is being portrayed here, what are their lives really like after we've already kind of gotten into it um, through the book itself?
0: I think one thing I'm thinking about is you're giving me both of those entry points, is that when you're putting that primary source up front, you are in some ways really providing, as you mentioned, that context that students may not already have, and giving them not only that, but also that engagement level, maybe ask the get them to ask some questions so that as they begin into the text of the literature that maybe some fireworks are going off, some things are being remembered back with that map or whatever other source that you're putting in front of them. I'm wondering about your students and in the second example where they've got the literature piece, right? They've got hopefully the story or the picture in their head from the story and then you're putting A primary source in front of them after that. And I'm wondering about those connections that they make, right? Because in some sense, it's you're doing almost the reverse. Like, does it cause them to look at the primary source in a different way because they have this understanding of the literature already? And then how does that circle back to the literature? I think it's probably a really interesting interaction between the two of those by putting the primary source kind of in some ways, flat in the middle, because you don't necessarily finish the book, right? You, you've just kind of hit this one portion. What have you seen with that? What do you appreciate about those, those interactions between student and source and literature?
1: I think that's a really interesting thing to talk about, because sometimes they get that aha moment. So they've read it, and without you know, some visual backup or historical backup, they may still be missing some pieces. So much of it depends on what we often talk about with primary sources is stimulating prior knowledge. But if they don't have any prior knowledge, and the only knowledge you've now given them is a piece of fiction, where's the truth in that? And I think a lot of them get that like, oh, that's what that meant. And we can often as you just mentioned, kind of circle back to particular passages. I like to do that a lot is is even if we've we've read it already, say, okay, now what now that we've looked at this piece, like I know, but you tell me, where do you see this connecting in the things that we've already read and it often can take them without me having to tell them? I mean, for me, and I think in the ways that we talk about analyzing primary sources, the idea is not to let me tell you about this, but how about you spend some time observing what you see, thinking about what it means, asking the questions, then I'll tell you a little more. And now you tell me, why did I show this to you? What was I getting at? Where, where does this fit? Did I just pull out this pretty picture? Probably not, probably there's a method to my madness. What was I trying to get you to think about? What was I trying to get you to look back at in the book? And I think it, it can make the path through a piece of literature much less linear. It's not just a story that begins and it ends. It's a story that has so many other permutations and so many other things that we can keep going back to. And it helps them to see maybe when an author has done something really clever as well, reminding them that we just because we already read chapter one doesn't mean that we should be leaving chapter one behind. There are still going to be connections to that. It's not just a straight line. Literature is a circle like anything else. And sure, I could tell them that, or I could ask them questions, but when you prompt it with a primary source, it just brings in and it gets all of those neurons firing because now they're looking at visual things or they're listening to things and they're referencing the text. And you're just able to stimulate so much more and make it a much richer experience of, well, I had to read this book in my English class.
0: I love this idea of, of making the story less linear. This idea that things circle back, and I'm also thinking in terms of layers and depth that I know go along can go along with the use of of primary sources and different selections of primary sources that might even tie into the same thing. Uh, you've got me thinking. So, on that note, I want to I want to check in and see if you can share. I feel like you already have because you've really told us like this these kind of great um, interactions and and deliberate situations that you're putting students in. But I'm wondering about if you can share a a success story with an ELA teacher and primary sources where you think the collaboration went really well.
1: This is this goes back to one of those um, situations that I talked about where there was it was really interesting this um, I was sitting at a table at like the introductory meeting when I was about to start at this new school where I became a librarian. And I got to chatting with this young woman to discover that we were going to be working at the same school. She was a new English teacher. And now we're in Virginia, mind you. We had attended the same high school in New Jersey. Total coincidence. But right there, we established this connection. It was just this crazy thing. She graduated 10 years after I did. So we weren't there at the same time. But... We knew a lot of the same teacher, you know, it was just crazy. So, right there was an entry point. And so, I would go to her and I'd say, What are you, what do you want to do? What are some cool things that you can do? So, we did a whole project um, later that year. And then, now, this was a very small school. So, there were only two sixth grade English teachers. And so, once she shared that she was going to get on board with something with me, the other teacher came right into it and said, "Uh, Whatever, I don't care what it is. Yes, I want in. Let's, let's do it, whatever it is. And so, they were reading, um, Oliver Twist, and so we did a big project about child labor, and as you know, particularly at the Library of Congress, there is a huge collection, the Lewis Hine collection of items related to child labor, and you can find, this is just a little tip about that collection, you can find pictures from all different parts of this country that he went around and photographed. So I was able to show little barefoot newsboys standing on street corners in norfolk virginia that was just the next town over and kids were like what this is we know where this is and we could really and and then some more rural virginia in that area though oyster shucking children and this kind of thing so we did this huge project and the end product was a persuasive letter that they were to write to a congressperson of that time asking for child labor to be abolished, for laws to be passed, which of course was the whole point of Lewis Hines' photographs in the first place was to get these laws passed. What well, we're seeing these these terrible, you know, this shocking, you know, children in these factories and, and working in these horrible jobs. And so while it was a novel that took place in England and, and was very different and removed from what our end point was, it still helped establish that context. And so they, and it brought in all those English language arts skills because there was a writing product at the end. We were reading the book. We were making the connections between what we could see from these children. We were bringing it to our own lives. We were, we did talk about like, are, are there still examples of child labor in this country and other countries? You know, you can just make a whole thing of it. And we did. And again, it all came from a conversation with a person who I hadn't previously met. And we just dreamed up because we knew One, we wanted that collaborative relationship, but it just worked beautifully. And she might not have known about the lewis Hine collection had we not been able to establish that connection. And so that, again, goes right back to what we talked about earlier with the librarian, sometimes having that specialized little piece of knowledge that's gonna make a whole experience much richer for the students.
0: I think that this is the purest example of just like take every single entry point you can get. So yes, we went to the same high school, okay, how are we going to work together right now? You just jumped right in on it. I love it. Um, Rebecca, I'm so glad about our connection that we have, and I'm really so (laughs) excited that you were able to jump in and join me uh, for the last 20 minutes. And tell us about all of this incredible work that you do with your teachers and with your students around primary sources and literature. They are lucky to have you, and we are lucky to have you here joining us today on the primary source podcast. Thank you so much.
1: Well, I am so glad to have been here. This makes me very happy to be able to talk about these things and and share hopefully with some other people who can maybe grab some ideas.
0: I love it. I love it. We'll put links to all of your pieces. You mentioned the blog post you wrote that you mentioned and some of the collections and all of that into the show notes. So people will be able to grab that as well. All right, Rebecca, thank you so much. I think that's great.
1: You are welcome. And thank you for having me. I appreciate it.